Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Grace Church, the Medina East Campus. Thanks so much for being out here this Sunday morning at our 915 services. Uh, actually, this week, we are going to be closing down a series that we have been in for about the past three weeks, a series that we have been calling GC3, A Vision for the Great Life. And so this series really began, and it will end with a simple but a very profound question. And the question is this, what is exactly the great life? And specifically in this series, we've been approaching this question, asking what God might have to say, what God's prescription for the great life would look like. And we have particularly like, stressed the idea that this life that God wants for people is not just something that should be postponed until after we die and meet Jesus in heaven, or when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom and reign, that that life is not something that we should think of as being postponed into that future but it's something that the Bible says God wants for us in the right here and in the right now to tap into. And so essentially GC3, we've kind of used this analogy or this picture of a triangle uh, with three uh, angles or three, uh, three frames that if you were to look through these three very biblical frames, you could have kind of like this window into the great life, God's great life that he wants for you and me. And so here's the way we did that. We said that in the scriptures, there's these three angles are this. The great commandment in Matthew 22 where Jesus says, love God and love people. That his followers' lives, his disciples' lives are to be characterized by love of God and love of people. And then we also said, we looked at the great commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus tells his followers to keep the main thing, the main thing. The one thing is to go and make disciples. In other words, that disciples of Jesus are to take all the energies that Jesus has invested in them and then pour them into the life of another person for the purposes of their spiritual growth, their conformity to Christ's likeness. They're growing to become more like Jesus. And so in the past couple of weeks, we've taken a look at these first two angles of GC3. And this last week, as we close down the series, we are going to be looking at this last one, this third one that we have been calling the great comforter. This comforter language is used in the Bible to refer to the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? So we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit today. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, we start talking about the Holy Spirit, we probably should acknowledge some of the, uh, some of the difficulties that come with uh, entertaining such a subject and investigating who the Spirit is as a person as well as what the Spirit does and his ministry, like what is his function. And uh, this is, this is uh, for a number of reasons, um, but pretty much, I think, for the most part, it's, it's due to the fact that the difficulty of the Holy Spirit and, and engaging this conversation is due to the fact that when you approach the Bible on the subject of the Holy Spirit, most of what the Bible gives to us about the Spirit is more assumed rather than it is overtly taught, okay? So in other words, if you were going to go to some classic passages that speak directly about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, you will not find a comprehensive, bullet-pointed list of every single thing that the Spirit is in his identity, as well as what the Spirit does in his ministry to Christ followers. And let me just give you an example of why I think this is the case for a second. A classic passage of Scripture in Ephesians 5.18 that speaks of the work of the Spirit Listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus here. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, which is one of my favorite words in the English language for some reason, I don't know. But do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, Paul's like, rather than that, be filled, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what do you think in the name of Whole30 do you think Paul is talking about here, right? Right? And so it's almost as if um, the, the church in Ephesus has some sort of prior context that they've had interactions with Paul and so they have some kind of awareness of who the Spirit is and what he does such that when Paul commands them, guys, don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, that they know what's going on or they have some insight into what that statement means. But for us who don't have that context, right, we're left to wonder, well, wait a minute, what, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What would something like that look like? And furthermore, how does one become filled with this Holy Spirit? And as you process this through to its logical conclusion, like, okay, so 
what would that look like in my life? It seems kind of creepy and weird that I would be filled with another person. And then even further, what would some of the outcomes of being filled with the Spirit produce in my life? What does that look like? And so for many of us, and if I think we're going to be honest, for many of us, when we approach the subject of the Holy Spirit, we could be easily confused and bewildered because of some of these reasons. Uh, as I think about being confused and bewildered in a situation like this, this always takes me back uh, to a time, I was 17 years old, and I had the opportunity to uh, go to England for two and a half weeks. Now, this was not a vacation. My family was not there. I was actually uh, on a trip with some other classmates, and so I had the opportunity to stay with an English family, a host home, and this particular English family had two sons that were about my age. One was a year older than me, one was a year younger than me. So we got on well, we became mates, because apparently that's the language that you use when you go over to Great Britain. But uh, so one Saturday, these, these two guys were like, hey, we're gonna go to a park, you're gonna come with us, we're gonna go to a park and we're gonna meet some of our other lads, because that's another word that you use for English boys. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna meet some of our friends and we are going to uh, play a pickup game of rounders. Anybody ever heard of rounders? Anybody? Rounders? Yeah, I didn't think so. So here's the deal. Um, I used to be into baseball when I was growing up. I was actually quite, quite decent at it uh, growing up. And so if, if you were to ask any baseball historian where the game of baseball come from, comes from, you would actually discover that in the mid-1800s, most baseball historians believe that the game of baseball emerged as an augmentation of the game of rounders that came over from England into the United States when the colonies were initially planted. So here I'm thinking, okay, we're going to get on with this game of rounders. And so we all gather together at the park, we pick teams, and, and, and as we're doing this, some of the lads over there in England told me, and they asked me, hey, do you, do you want us to kind of run through the details of what, do you, do you want us to inform you of how to play this game of rounders? And I'm thinking in my mind, well, it's a close cousin of baseball, right? This can't be that hard. I mean, I've never played rounders before, but I know how to do this. So I politely passed on the tutorial and said, no, I'll be fine. We're ready to play. So we picked the teams and we start, and my team was up first, and apparently it was like an honorarium because I'm the American. My team let me bat first. And so I get up and I dig into the batter's box, you know, like trying to be all cool, because here's the thing, I was going to play rounders not just to experience English culture, but I was going to play rounders to show off my American swag, like, new, new Independence Day, guys, here we go, watch the American, just, so I dig in, and uh, the pitcher, as he's getting ready to throw the ball, here, here's what he says, he says, all right, are you ready for me to bowl this to you? Wait, what? I'm thinking, Bowl? And so I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want to pause and be like, excuse me, what do you mean by bowl? I thought you threw a pitch, right? And so <clears throat> not wanting to be embarrassed, I just said, well, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm totally ready for you. Bowl away, <laughs> right? And then the next minute, I wasn't sure whether the ball was going to come right at me like it was in normal American baseball when you pitch it or if the ball was going to be like slowly roll along the ground and I was going to have to try to hit it. And as a result of all that mental stuff that was going on, he throws the ball just like an American pitcher would do in baseball, and it zips right past me, didn't even have the opportunity to swing, bullseye, strike, which the umpire proceeds to yell, ball. And then one of my teammates jumps up, clearly agitated with the umpire, and says, that was no ball. I'm thinking, it's a ball, it's a good thing, right? He says, that was a no ball. No ball? Like, what are you talking about? And so a, a couple of bowls later, guys, I finally got a hold of one, man. I sent this thing screaming into right center field. It was a beauty. And as I'm running around the bases, I'm running around first pole. That's right. Later I come to find out they're not bases. They're called poles. Like Things on the ground are called poles, apparently. So I'm rounding first pole, and I slide into second pole with a double, and I'm wiping myself off. I'm super proud of myself, and so is my team, right? They are cheering for me like nobody's business, and they're just yelling, yeah, good job, Seth. Way to get that half rounder. And then on this dilapidated scoreboard that was at the park, one half of a rounder appeared on the scoreboard. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And then, then one of my teammates screamed at me. He goes, hey, on the next play, 
make sure not to get caught between third and fourth pole when the pitcher bowls the ball into the back area. And that's when it hit me. I have no idea how to play rounders. Not at all. But here's the thing. Was I going to let on that I didn't know how to play rounders? Absolutely not. I was going to play this thing real cool. And here's what I was going to do. I was going to try to get by in this game by simply observing what other people did, adopting that, and hoping that I could make it to the end without completely making a fool out of myself. And the reason why I think about that in the context of our conversation on the Holy Spirit is a lot of times we can approach our same bewilderment on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in a very similar way. You see, for many of us, we feel like with the Holy Spirit that we're like baseball players that are trying to play rounders with the Bible. All the while, sometimes completely confused and bewildered about what's really going on, but we don't want to let on. And here's the deal. What we'll typically do, I know I've done this in the past, is when we are, we are unaware of what's happening, in order to fill in the gaps, because we can't time work back to the time of the Apostle Paul, in order to fill in the gaps, we'll just look around and observe, observe what other people do who claim to be doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit in really churchy settings. And usually I have found in my experience, which is limited, you may have more, but in my experience, these, uh, these feelings and these observations of everyone else and what they're doing in the name of the Holy Spirit usually take two distinct forms. The first form is what I would call this, spirit amania. This is a form that the work of the Spirit is alleged to take in many churches. So this would be like for those of you who have ever walked into a church and you have been immediately greeted by people waving banners and flags. Everyone has a tambourine and they're all using it and they're all offbeat. I'm a musician, I can tell. They're all offbeat. Um, the music lasts for like three and a half hours. People are speaking in other languages. And most of the time, the people on stage, they have their eyes closed and their faces are like twisting and contorting as though they're hearing some kind of inaudible voice that the rest of us can't hear that they're getting a download from. Either that or they're constipated. I mean, honestly, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right? But, but here's what's happening. Usually in these settings, the, the Spirit's work is attributed to anything that is weird or anything that's bizarre, anything out of the ordinary or strange. And also anything that's spontaneous, right? So the only normal in an environment like that seems to be the stuff that's abnormal. And so what typically happens is that if you see something in a church, if it's sudden and if it's strange, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, listen to me. There is no way that I'm saying that an expression like that is evil, wrong, heretical, or bad. That is not my point. You see, because there are plenty of cases on the opposite end of the spectrum, what I call spirit of phobia. This is if you've ever walked into a church and you just get this impression that there is this nervous, sweat-filled caution about anything that might seem to be outside the boundaries of what we have set for ourselves in our time of worship together. So, like a nervous caution, like when the music plays, you stand there with your hymnal and you sing. If your children start to sway their hips even ever so slightly to the left or right, they are excommunicated from the church, right? And so we have this idea like that there's this nervous caution like don't let the spirit out of his cage. Let's just do what we've all planned to do and leave it at that and let's make sure the spirit doesn't do anything weird with us in this setting. Which is fascinating, it's almost baffling to me when you think about the kind of life and relationship that God wants to have with human beings through Christ. This kind of adventurous sort of dynamic life that is often likened to a marriage where if you think about it, in, in a marriage, if you wanna have a healthy interaction and relationship with your wife or your husband in a marriage, what are you gonna do? There are certain things you're gonna plan. There are th certain things you're gonna schedule, certain roles that you're gonna play that's healthy, but there's also those moments and those times where spontaneity is not only acceptable or approved, it's encouraged to keep the vibrancy of that relationship. So how in the world is the spirit of phobia church communicating this adventurous life, this great life that God is calling us, or that God is calling us into? And so as we think about these various expressions, I, I think the word, that word dynamic is kind of important when we think about the role of the Holy Spirit, and here's why. 
So in the Bible, there is this word. It is a Greek word, but you'll, I think you'll recognize it really fast. It's this word dunamis, okay? And in the Bible, it's translated in, in our English translations as this word power. And it is frequently used in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now again, you could probably sort of understand where this word comes from. It's very familiar to you. Why? Well, it's because it's where we get our English word dynamic. This sort of vibrant, exciting, adventurous kind of feeling that you get in the life that God wants for us. But you might also recognize it, and this word dunamis supplies our English word dynamite. Now, this word dynamite has often been used as an analogy to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, as the analogy goes, if you want to blow a hole in the side of a mountain, and you want to put a freeway right there in the place where that mountain formerly was, what do you need? Well, you can't do that under your own power. You can't do that with a bunch of shovels. It would take you forever. What you need is the explosive energy, this earth-moving, earth-shattering energy provided by dynamite, which does provide a great picture of the kind of explosive power of the Holy Spirit that's attributed to him throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible. But this word dynamite and that analogy falls short in terms of referencing the power or the work of the Holy Spirit in one key aspect. You see, whereas dynamite usually is used to deplete and to destroy, to decimate, when the dunamis power of God, the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit is referenced in the scriptures, it doesn't have anything to do with destruction or decimation. It more often than not has to do with bringing life and vitality and wholeness into situations and environments that were formerly characterized by brokenness and despair. All right, so now that we've, we've unearthed some of the, I think, baggage that we might have in entering into a conversation with the Holy Spirit, here's what, here's what I want to do. I want to lay all my cards out on the table for you this morning. I, I want to I let you know that the rest of our time today, I would love to see us capture that the Bible looks at the role of the Holy Spirit through the context of this word called empowerment. That the Holy Spirit is given, in, given to Christ followers and people who follow Jesus for the purposes of empowerment. For the purposes of enabling, enabling them to do things that they could otherwise not do on their own. Okay? And usually we find in the scriptures, generally speaking, that this empowerment in Christ followers takes two forms. And the first form is what I would call power to work in you. That the Holy Spirit is given to followers of Jesus as power to work something in you. And then secondly, that the Holy Spirit is given to followers of Jesus for power to work something through you. And so here's what we're going to do. For the rest of the time that we have this morning, we are going to take these one after the other. And we're actually going to do so in two different passages. I know, challenging, right? But I know we can do this. So Galatians 5, 19 through 24 is where we're going to start. And by the way, if you brought your Bibles, now's a good time to get them out. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some under the seats in front of you. And if you want to thumb to Galatians 5, 19 through 24, it'll be on page 813 in those Bibles under the seats in front of you. And then once you find your way there, I would love for you to also find your way to Acts 1, 6 through 8. And just put your pinky or your thumb in there because we're going to save that for later. And again, in those black Bibles under the seats in front of you, that will be on page 758 in those Bibles. So Galatians 5, 19 through 24, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit is power to work in you. And in Acts 1, 6 through 8, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit is power to work through you. All right? You guys ready? Ready? Audience participation is, is, uh, is accepted. All right, so Galatians 5, 19 through 24. This is what Paul says. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. There's that word again, right? Love it. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. This list just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. Okay, so the first part of this, this passage, the first three verses in particular, uh, gives us a list of things that uh, human beings struggle with that contribute to our own brokenness or produce brokenness and decay and death. And so in other words, we could probably safely say that the stuff of the first three verses in this passage are not characteristics that God wants for us as he's offering us the kind of great life that we can have access to in the here and in the now. And so now I realize when we come to a list like this, it can be pretty, it can seem pretty severe. We could, we could really get bogged down with the weightiness and, and the depression that can come with looking at the stuff of this passage. And some of us might even roll our eyes at things like witchcraft. Like I love that in other translations, they translate it as sorcery. And so it's like, yeah, dude, um, totally tracking what you're doing in the passage here, Paul, but I can't remember the last time I had a real struggle with sorcery or witchcraft. Like, can't remember the last time I was really tempted to grab my Harry Potter wand and cast a spell on someone and turn them into an aardvark or something like that. Like, or get out my Gandalf baton and do, do something with Sauron and the Lord of the Rings, right? I can't remember the last time I really struggled with stuff like that. And all right, I'll concede that. I'll concede that. But, but what about some of the other things that you find in this list? What about, um, what about this guy right here? Jealousy. Anybody ever been jealous with another person? Anybody ever looked at the abilities that another person has and think, man, why can't I be like that? See, guys, I think when we start to really dig into some of the things on this list, and if we're getting really honest with ourselves, we discover that the struggle is real and we've all experienced stuff like this. And I mean, honestly, if, if, if I can just be really transparent with you for a second, um, I struggle with this idea of jealousy. It is such a struggle, especially in those moments where I am asked to stand up here on the stage in front of you guys and share what's on my heart. And, and some of that is because when you think about it, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about it, if you've been a part of the Medina East Campus, have you ever stopped and thought about all the phenomenal communicators that we have here at our campus? I mean, think about it. Week in and week out, a guy like Pastor Tony, who is incredibly gifted, like God's wired him for this. He is a gift to the body of Christ. Man, when he gets up and he talks, there, I'm telling you, there is not a week that goes by where I don't walk out of here either being challenged in my relationship with Jesus or encouraged in my relationship with Jesus. The guy is phenomenal. And then, beyond that, you think about these other guys like Clark, we heard from a few weeks back, and Steve and Tommy, man, these young firebrands who just bring it, right? They're awesome. And then, even, even further, we have the amazing privilege of having a senior pastor, Jeff Bogue, over all of grace, who we get to hear from from time to time. Amazing communicator, amazing leader, and then even more than that, we have other campus pastors that we have heard from in the past, guys like Dan Gregory and Jeff Martell. These guys are off the charts in their ability to communicate God's word. And honestly, when I stand up here in preparation for this, I, I struggle, right? I struggle, and I, and I say things like, God, God, why couldn't you make me like that guy? Why couldn't I be a more effective communicator like Tony or like Jeff or like this guy or that guy? And these feelings of comparison often start to well up. We feel totally inadequate and we embrace and encounter this thing, jealousy. And my guess is, guys, I'm not the only one in this room that has experienced stuff like that before. And how about some of the rest of the things on this list, right? Any of you ever wrestle and struggle with hatred? Anyone ever do something to you or say something to you that hurt you? And all you want to do is get out your Gandalf wand and turn him into an aardvark. Any of you ever embrace discord or dissensions, factionalism? Any of you feel the struggle and the pull to those things? How about selfish ambition? And how about even sexual immorality? Which, by the way, dudes in the room, that is anything outside of God's design 
for a loving marriage relationship, porn included. As a matter of fact, this word in the original language is porneia. It is literally where we get our word porn. Now, now here's the thing. At the end of the day, as we're doing the heart check that I hope you're doing right now, my goal is not to depress you or to think that you are the worst person in the world. Because I think, guys, honestly, when we really dig down deep in the depths of our soul, I don't think we really want to be an idolater. I don't really think that that's what we want at the end of the day. I don't think that when we close our eyes and picture what we want our life to be about, the vision of a life that we want to live and have for ourselves and the goals that we set for ourselves, at the end of the day, I don't think that we long for our life to be characterized by something like sexual immorality. Like, that's the thing I want to be known for. I honestly don't think that that's true. I don't think we, we desire these things more so as much as we find ourselves powerless to resist the urge of sin that exists in our lives that pushes us to these things. And this is where Paul's statement or this phrase, the acts of the flesh, is so important to understand. Especially this word flesh. Paul frequently uses this word and he uses it to describe human nature in its, in its broken and its fractured state, in its corrupted state. And, and notice too how Paul takes flesh and he almost personifies it, right? He almost gives it legs and arms and a brain because, right, the flesh can act. The flesh can work. It can do things in us. It has a power over us such that we, we feel this pull like the flesh is acting constantly in our lives to, to strenuously work to persuade us and sometimes we feel even push us into the things that will ultimately lead to our own demise and our death. But what's crazy about this passage is for all that Paul goes into to dig into the work of the flesh that occurs in a person's life, that a person that we as people are powerless to resist or we find ourselves powerless to resist. I love the way that Paul contrasts this with the fruit of the Spirit. Notice when Paul starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say that the Spirit is given to empower people to simply cancel out all the negative things in their life. The Spirit might do that, but the list that Paul gives us following his introduction of the fruit of the Spirit is saying that, man, the Spirit's not just there to resist the gravitational pull to sin. The Spirit is there to start a transformative process, to make people new, to build in and develop the characteristics and the habits of a brand new kind of life, the great life that God has always wanted for us and intends for us because of what he did in Jesus Christ. The Spirit just doesn't cancel out these negative things. He gives us power to live a surplus kind of life, power to be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And notice, too, that whereas the acts of the flesh are plural, Paul says it's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit that is operative. And what he means by that is the single fruit that the Spirit gives you power to produce in your life is the first thing that shows up in this list. It's love. The echoes of the great commandment of Jesus start to ring in our ears. Love God and love others. How could we do that? We need power. We need the fruit of the Spirit, the singular fruit of the Spirit of love. And such that the rest of these words that appear in this list of the fruit of the Spirit, they are simply different dimensions or different ways, different angles of looking at the love that God wants to produce in the life of a Christ follower. Such that when you experience joy in your life, when you encounter peace, when you begin to become faithful where you couldn't be before because the pull of the flesh was too strong, where you are gentle in your relationships, God's given you an indicator. Man, the Spirit is giving you power to work in your life, to transform you so that you can authentically love others just like Jesus loved you in going to the cross. This is wild. And so the Spirit is given here. He's given for power to live the new kind of life, power to work in you to transform you and make you into something that looks more and more like Jesus. So the Spirit is given as power to work in you, but we've also said that the Spirit is given as power to work through you. 
So this is where I want you to turn to Acts 1, 6 through 8. And let's dive in here real quick. So here's what Luke says as he writes in Acts. He says, Then they gathered, they being the disciples, they gathered around him, Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, just like we saw in Galatians, right? But, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, let's set the stage for this passage. Jesus has been risen from the dead. And it is about 40 days that have elapsed since that moment. And Jesus calls his disciples to himself because he is about to ascend into heaven. That's going to happen in verse 9. So he's going about to ascend into heaven and he is going to give sort of like the last will and testament, the last set of marching orders that he wants to give these guys before he goes away. And so notice what Jesus says here. He, he, um, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority because these guys are asking questions like this. Basically, let me interpret it for you. These guys are asking questions like, okay, Jesus, you're awesome. You've risen from the dead. You've done a lot of incredible things, most of which we didn't expect. Is now the moment when you're finally going to free us and liberate us from enslavement to Roman rule? Are you finally going to do the thing that we want you to do and vanquish all of Rome's armies, set up your own kingdom here on earth so that we can live free of that, from that oppression? And so Jesus' response is awesome here. He's like, he just completely redirects their focus here. He says, listen, guys, don't concern yourself with that kind of stuff. The Father's got that. God's business is God's business. Let him take care of that. Because again... God's dunamis, his power, his greatness in his power, is not to deplete and to destroy. It's not to vanquish the Roman military horde. Instead, God's dunamis power is given to followers of Jesus to bring life and healing into hopeless situations. And so what's he going to give, what he's going to give them power to do is not vanquish that army, but to what? Be carriers of the life of God and the life that is offered through Christ in their city, in their region, in their states or countries, and truly across the world, globally. They are going to be, he says, his witnesses, Jesus' witnesses in these locales. Now, witnesses is an important term here, okay? And think of a courtroom when you think of the idea or the word, or the word witness. You see, in a courtroom, a witness is not the defendant. They are not the prosecutor. They're not the judge. They're, they're not the jury. What is a witness asked to do in a courtroom? Well, they are simply asked to take the stand and to testify. They are testifying of the event that they saw in all truth and honesty, and often they are testifying to the relationship that they have in knowing the character of the defendant who is the one who's really on trial. So in other words, Jesus is like, guys, you're going to be my courtroom witnesses to the world. Who is on the... Who's on the defendant stand? Well, Jesus himself. But you guys are going to be the ones who go into these dark places of the world and testify of your relationship about, or your relationship with me. You're going to testify about me. You're also going to testify to the amazing work that that relationship is producing in your life, this transformative work. In other words, Jesus is saying, you guys are going to corroborate the claims of the gospel by appealing to your relationship with me. But notice, guys, what has to come first? What has to come first is the power of the Holy Spirit given to these guys so they can boldly and confidently proclaim that message about life and salvation in Jesus. When I think about this idea of, of witnesses, I, I'm reminded of a, of a time about a year, just a little over a year ago, where my family and I were invited to a uh, a child's birthday party. So we're friends with the family and our kids are friends with uh, the birthday girl. And so it was on a Sunday afternoon um, after weekend services. And, and if I could just be honest again, like once we do weekend services on a weekend, I am like toast. <laughs> I'm, I'm zapped. The, the energy level's not really high. And usually I take all of Sunday afternoon to watch football if it's on or just sleep for like eight hours. So, 
So being on a Sunday afternoon, I was really hesitant to go. I didn't want to go. I, I had no desire to go to a child's birthday party. Um, but I thought, okay, wait a minute. I don't know anybody else but the family here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hunker down. I'm only going to interact with my own family and maybe the birthday girl to say happy birthday and her parents. But I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to sit at my table. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm going to be incognito pastor. And I'm going to sit there and drink my Capri Sun because that's what you have at children's birthday parties. So I got there and I started to do this thing and at one point I was finished with my Capri Sun and I noticed they had lemonade across the patio. So I got up, uh, I didn't have a hoodie but I felt like putting a hoodie on, you know. Got up, I walked across the patio and, and suddenly like out of nowhere there's this guy who turned around, he was talking with somebody else but he turned around really quickly and I almost totally bowled him over. No, no pun intended with the rounders reference on bowling but like I almost bowled this guy straight over and uh, you get in that moment where you almost just toast somebody that you've never met, and you're like the standoff, like, are you okay? Are you mad at me? I'm not mad at you. And once we got, once we got past that, we kind of laughed a little bit. It was, it was a little funny. Then, of course, you have to do the thing, the polite thing. Social convention says that you introduce yourself to this other person. So um, I introduced myself to him, and he introduced himself to me. And then, of course, social convention also says that the next thing you have to do is ask what each other does. What's your occupation? And he beat me to the punch on this one. And uh, I grimaced a little bit because, man, every time I let someone know that I'm a pastor, it's like they go from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. High. Like, they clean up and, I don't know, you don't need to do that, by the way, if, uh, if we're ever in an interaction that way. So he asked me this question, what do you do? And I braced myself and I said, well, well I'm a pastor. And I'll never forget how he responded because he didn't respond with his occupation. This is what he said. He said, oh, well, I'm an atheist. True story, true story. And I thought, oh, here is another lazy Sunday afternoon just right down the tubes, right? And come on, if you're an atheist in this room, you got to chuckle at that a little bit. That's just hilarious, like, to, to an atheist and a pastor. It's like a joke. It's the beginning of a joke. An atheist and a pastor go to a child's birthday party and almost collide. And so I just remember the next thing that came out of my mouth, I... Um, looking back, I know where it came from, but in that moment, it was just spontaneous. It was out of nowhere. This is the way, something like this, I responded. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, w would you mind letting me know, like, a little bit of your story? Can I hear a little bit of your story and, like, some of your past and some of the decisions that you made, these intellectual moments that, that brought you to the place where, where you made this decision that you're going to call yourself an atheist? In as kind a way as I could, I said, I would just really love to hear because I also said, you know, as a pastor, unfortunately, I don't get a lot of opportunities to sit across the table and dialogue with somebody who is a professed atheist in a way where we're not like getting into a shouting match. And guys, for the next 20 minutes, this guy just unloaded on me and not in a bad way. He began to tell me his story how he was born and raised in the church with parents who were, as he would call them, very devout. And quickly, he got bored with church. He thought, man, there's this whole relationship with Jesus thing that I don't understand. It's just kind of weird, and people do some strange things in church, and I don't understand it. He got bored with church, and then he started to tell me about how as he grew into his teenage years, he looked around him, and he saw a lot of hypocrisy in Christians. And he thought, man, is that the kind of life that a God who sent his son in Jesus would, would want for me? No, no thanks. And then he said, when he went to college, he had a friend who was a couple years older than him who kind of mentored him. His friend was an atheist. And as they processed and dialogued through late nights, he arrived at this conclusion that, guys, he arrived at a conclusion that there is no God and that there couldn't possibly be a God that would love him to the degree to send Jesus for him, to die for him to rescue him, to restore him, to transform him. And unfortunately, we had to conclude the conversation, but I just left it and I just said, hey man, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I, I really appreciate how open you were. You didn't know me from Adam. So thank you. And I will never, guys, I will never forget the way he responded to me. He said, I've met a lot of Christians. I've met a lot of them. And he looked at me in the eye, he goes, you're not one of them. You're not like them. He said, and the reason you're not like them is because anytime I tell another Christian that I'm an atheist, 
they immediately barrage me with their truth and their theology, like a boxing match is pummeling me. And they tell me how wrong I am to believe what I believe. And again, I responded, I don't know where it came from. I think I do, but in the moment I didn't know where it came from. I said, man, I'm sorry about that. And then randomly I'm just like, listen, I know you're headed back to Denver in a couple weeks. Would you ever care to continue the conversation over coffee or maybe I could buy you dinner or something like that. We just hang out and talk a little bit more. I really love that. And a week and a half later, we sat down and we spent over three and a half hours talking about God, talking about what the Bible says, rerouting his understanding, helping him more of his expectations about the true God that I believe in and want to be a witness for. And man, this guy got an opportunity where there would have been none to hear the gospel of Jesus, to just hear the simple truth that God loves you. God loves you. And why do I tell you that story? Listen, I don't tell you that story to try to give myself a big head in front of you to say, oh, look what I did as a Christ follower. Wasn't that strategic and amazing? When I think about that encounter with that guy, here's what I think of first. The only thing I think about is how utterly powerless I was to orchestrate that encounter the way it went. Listen, I can't, I can't manipulate a guy's schedule who I don't even know to make sure that he comes to his niece's birthday party, to make sure he picks up his glass of lemonade as he did to make sure that he whirls around and we start our interaction the way that we did. I can't do that. Neither can I know intuitively this guy's experience, where he came from, the struggles that he's had with God and Christianity and the sad portrayal of who Jesus is from Christ followers that he believes are hypocrites. I can't know any of that. Likewise, I can't have the exact right words to say with the appropriate rhetorical flourish to ensure that I'm able to really inspire this guy and connect the truth of Jesus in a way where he'll say yes. Guys, I can't do that. I am totally powerless to do that. But as a Christ follower, not as a pastor, get that out of your head, as a Christ follower, I do have something. I do have the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit who empowers me to do things that I could never do without him. I have access to this power. And listen to me, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, lock into this. If you miss everything else I say today, don't miss this. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you could lock in to the reality that God simply wants you to be his witness, that God simply wants you to be available to be used by him, with the power that he gives you, the willingness to say, God, wherever I'm at, I'm willing to see things through your eyes. If we could lock into that, if we could lock into the reality that we might be the only Jesus that someone will ever come in contact with, if we could lock into that, guys, we would tell stories that would rival the book of Acts. We would. And not rival the book of Acts necessarily in terms of the crazy, weird way or the character or the shape, although we shouldn't rule that out as a possibility. It is the Holy Spirit. But rival the stories of the book of Acts in the great wave of people that would come to know the love of Christ in their life simply because they encountered a follower who was willing to be available to be used by him to witness and just say, I know what Jesus has done in my life and to share their own life and share their own transformation, the transformation that Jesus gives only because they have, or as a Christ follower, you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's the Galatians 5 stuff. And if we're able to pair Galatians 5 with Acts 1, guys, we have a solid foundation and understanding of who the Spirit is and what he wants to do in the lives of Christ followers. I, I love the way that Dr. David Peterson, who is a scholar in the book of Acts, I love the way he words this in his commentary. He says that the book of Acts 
shows us how the apostles inform and enable others to be a part of a Jesus-centered community and to share in the task of bringing others to Christ. In the final analysis, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, indicates that effective Christian witness involves both a sharing of the apostolic testimony. Let me interpret that for you. All the apostolic testimony is, is sharing the truth about who Jesus is and what he has come to do and how he has worked in your life to produce transformation. Again, a transformation that only the power of the Spirit can produce. The apostolic testimony is the gospel. It is a sharing of the truth that we are more messed up than we even think we are, that we are radically sinful, but a good God who loved us to the end, who is radically loving, has sent his son to take the weight of our sin and our brokenness on his shoulders that we might go free and that we might learn how to love Radically, we're more messed up than we think we are, but we are more accepted and loved than we ever could possibly imagine. So Luke indicates that effective Christian witness involves both that, a sharing of the apostolic testimony, a communication of the gospel to Jesus, and, he says, a demonstration of spiritual and moral transformation arising from personal commitment to the risen Lord. Guys, the story that you need to share is the story of Jesus. But the way you communicate that story is sharing just how that story of Jesus has worked in your own story to do things in you and through you and to build in you qualities that you never thought were possible and that were impossible apart from the power that you've been given as a Christ follower in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the band to come up now, and we're going to uh, close things out here. But I want to reroute us a little bit to just those two areas again, that the Holy Spirit is power to work in you and power to work through you. Listen, for, for some of you here today, um, your focus is, is on that Galatians 5 piece. For some of you, you need to know and you, you need to experience that, man, Jesus has given you power to work in your life, this transformation, to make your life something radically different from where it is today. And for some of you, it could be that you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, and you know where your life is headed, you know where it's going, and I want to tell you that like, Jesus extends the invitation, his loving invitation to you, to give you the power to be able to have your life transformed into something that looks like his. And buying into Jesus by faith, trusting him and saying, yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you and I want access to this power that you have. That's all it takes. And for those of you who have committed to follow Jesus, but you see all the stuff of the first three verses of Galatians 5, 19 through 24, constantly showing up in your life, and you feel powerless to, to resist the struggle in those things, for some of you, you just need to know afresh that God has indeed given you power, not just to cancel that stuff out, but to give you a new brand new kind and way of living. Some of you need to know today that Jesus has given you power to work in you, transformation that you couldn't work apart from the Holy Spirit. Others of you need to know that you have been given as a Christ follower the power to be a witness for Jesus, to boldly and confidently and with clarity stand in front of people who are lost and hurting and who need to hear that love and be able to connect the story of Jesus with them. Many of you have fears in doing that. Guess what? So did the early church. So did the apostles. The, the book of Acts is chock full of stories of goofed up, messed up, timid, cowardly men and women who when, they, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of them were bold, confident, and clear. That's available to you as a Christ follower. Some of you need to know that that's what God has given you the power to engage today. So here's what I want to do. Regardless of whether you're in both those camps or maybe one or the other, what I can't do is tell you what your next step is. We're, we're talking about the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us and transforming us. The Holy Spirit is the one you need to talk to. So what I can provide you, though, is a space. And that's exactly what I want you to think of this time that we sing and as we worship together. I just want you to treat it as a space to do that business with the Holy Spirit, to begin to cultivate the relationship with the Holy Spirit, to realize the power that's at your disposal to have your life changed and to connect the story of the gospel with others. And so here's what, here's what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna toss two questions up here on the board. And they're this. Maybe you wanna ask these questions as we're singing 
and as, we're, as the band plays. One, God, what is keeping me from experiencing the Spirit's power to transform my life? Ask him. He'll tell you. God, what is keeping me from experiencing the Spirit's power to transform my life? And secondly, God, what fears prevent me from knowing the power of the Spirit to make me a witness? You see, when we conclude here, we get this three, these three elements of the GC3. We know that God wants to make us new so that we can love him and others. We know that he wants us to pour into other people by sharing the gospel and pour into them for the purposes of them becoming more like Jesus. But these two legs, man, they don't stand a chance. We cannot do that under our own power unless we have the power that Jesus gives us in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the offer of liberation and freedom in your son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. Jesus, we're thankful that you were faithful not only to die on that cross, but you were faithful to be obedient to the Father to give us an example of what this amazing great life that the Father wants for us looks like. And Jesus, we are amazingly thankful that when you left and you ascended into heaven, that you didn't leave us as orphans. You didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us powerless to try to do this thing, to figure out the great commandment and the great commission on our own. Jesus, you sent your spirit. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us the power to do what we cannot do. So God, for every person in this room, my prayer is for every one of us that we would do the appropriate work that we need to do, that we would maybe just for the first time interact with your spirit in such a way where we just yield to you and what you're doing and just ask questions. God, what do you want to do in my life? What obstacles do I need to overcome? God, I pray, Lord, that we can find this deep sense, this deep and abiding sense of worship when we ask you questions like that because, God, we're just looking for our wills to be conformed to yours to want what you want, not only in our lives, but to want what you want for the lives of other people who are hurting and broken in our world. Jesus, wherever we're at, and by your spirit, speak to us. Let us know what our next step is. and Help us to be emboldened by that same spirit to take the next step as we walk away from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.